Good morning. Once again, we want to acknowledge to our Father and our God in heaven that we are grateful for all of his love, mercy, and blessings. It is a tremendous privilege to be a child of God. And if we respect the privilege and if we are grateful for it, uh, we realize that it is not God's lot to please us. Uh, it is our lot to please God. Thus, salvation, worship, service, and living are not about what we would choose. Those things are determined by what God commands. It was David who requested in Psalm 19, verse 14, said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And as we go through life, we need to be ever mindful of the fact that it is our lot to please God. Uh, God is not in the business of trying to make us happy. He does declare that he wishes us to be holy. And for all of God's blessings, we ought to be eternally grateful. We want to direct your attention again this morning to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, the text that was read into our hearing by my big brother. Uh, we want to look in particular there again, uh, starting at verse number 28. Jesus says, but what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not, but afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Based on the words of Jesus recorded here in Matthew chapter 21, uh, we want to use this morning as a subject the two sons. You will recall that our sub-theme for the month of September uh, is the parables of Jesus, and in particular, we are uh, giving considerations to parables where the number two is prominent. And as we consider the text that we have before us here in Matthew chapter 21, uh, this is not the only parable that Jesus ever spoke with two sons. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 could well be called the parable of the two sons. But when we look at this parable here in Matthew chapter 21, I find myself challenged by this parable because another issue, other than the one that Jesus is addressing, leaps to my mind. Listen to what Jesus says again. A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. Houston, we have a problem. 
I find myself almost missing what Jesus wants to talk about because of the way Jesus told, uh, chose to tell it. This parable is not about disciplining one's children. And, and I have to remember that as I read this parable because in my mind, there's no way you defy your father to his face and tell him what you are not going to do. I know this parable is not about disciplining one's children because Jesus gives no reaction by the father to either son. And, and, and I don't want to talk about what the parable is not about, but, but I'm going to go there since I said it. Had this parable been about disciplining one's children, it would have read differently, <laughs> at least in my version of the telling. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not a violent man, and I don't believe that the rod is always the parent's go-to. But on this occasion, under these circumstances, I believe the use of the rod would have been warranted. This son flagrantly defies his father and at that to his father's face. See, boy, we just don't understand something. You're just not going to tell me no to my face. You know, now, now I know none of us was ever the perfect child and all of us uh, uh, transgress, but, but there are just certain things that in the list of transgressions you go through and cross off as, I don't want to take a chance on doing that one. See, my version of telling this story would have included something from uh, of the sons of Sceva. You remember the sons of Sceva tried to exercise the evil spirit uh, out of the man, and the Bible says the man leapt on them and uh, overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled that house naked and wounded. I, I would have borrowed something from the sons of Sceva in the telling of this parable. And, and my version would have read, when the first son defied his father to his face, his father leapt upon him and overcame him and prevailed against him so that he fled to the vineyard to work as his father had asked him. <laughs> now, I know in the parable, he ended up going to the vineyard anyhow, but if this had been about disciplining your children, uh, that's how my version would have read. If this had been a parable about disciplining one's children, I believe the second son would have required some conversation as well. I, I believe you'd have to ask the second son, son, what happened? I, I thought you said you were going to work in my vineyard, but I see you didn't go. Now, now how we would have proceeded would have depended uh, on the reason he gave for his absence. However, thank God for grace and mercy, and this parable isn't about disciplining one's children. Now, now, if you want to talk about disciplining uh, uh, your children, see me offline, but, but that's not what we're going to talk about right now. So someone asked, well, what then is this parable about? Well, contextually, the cauldron has been bubbling for some time. If we just call it for what it is, the Jewish leaders did not like Jesus. And prior to the telling of the parable of our focus this morning, several notable events have occurred 
uh, which are recorded right here in Matthew chapter 21. We see in Matthew 21, we read of Jesus's uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We read that Jesus cleansed the temple of the merchants and the money changers. We see that Jesus healed the blind and the lame. And we also read that Jesus received the praise of the children. Now, the Jewish leaders who did not like Jesus at this point are fit to be tied. Thus, they challenge Jesus's authority. Uh, they come to Jesus and they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? And you remember Jesus said, well, let me ask you a question. The, the, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? And you remember they pulled back into their little huddle and they said, well, if we say it was from heaven, then he'll ask us why we didn't believe. And if we say from men, then the crowd won't like that because the crowd holds uh, uh, John uh, as a prophet. So, so they say to Jesus, well, we can't tell. Now, that's a lie. You can tell. You just don't want to because neither answer suits your own evil purposes. So they say to Jesus, we can't tell. Well, Jesus, having received no clear answer to his question about John's baptism, says, well, then I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority from. But he does respond by presenting a series of three parables. And the first parable, which is the subject of our consideration this morning, uh, answered the question of Jesus's authority and clarified who a child of God is truly. You see, for all that these Jewish leaders held that they were God's spokespersons and spoke by God's authority, they continually opposed and resisted God in the flesh. And, and, and here we see the grace and mercy of God in dealing with people. See, this was not Jesus's first encounter with these men. And, and he could have just gone for the jugular and, and read them the riot act. But, but notice how he handled this situation. It, Jesus asked that, now he knows they're lying. But rather than just call them, you know, and you know, sometimes folk can just tell you you're lying and say it in the way, you know, when I came up, you, you couldn't say to an adult, you're lying. Now, you, you could find some other way to try to let them know, I, I don't think you are accurate in what you're saying, but you could not tell an adult you're lying. See, even if they were lying, you were in trouble just for saying to an adult they were lying. You know, sometimes you contradict your parents and they ask you, oh, you say I'm lying. Well, no, in fact, I'm just going to be quiet and I'm going to cut my losses and I'll just go sit down somewhere. Well, Jesus could have told them they were lying. In fact, Jesus could have said to them, not only are you lying, but you're a barefaced lie. But Jesus didn't choose to deal with it like that. Jesus said, well, what do you think? Now, I find it interesting, you would ask a bunch of liars what they think. See, because we already lied once, we, we probably lie again. But Jesus asked them, what do you think? A certain man had 
two sons. And he asked them for their thoughts about the matter. And, and let me just say, it, it's hard to reason with unreasonable people. And sometimes unreasonable people can't be reasoned with. You remember Paul in Romans 12, verse 18, he says, if it be possible. Now, the fact that he says, if it be possible, says that sometimes it's not possible. But if it be possible, you know, it, it, go that extra mile, it, it, do what you have to do, be willing to bend over backwards if necessary. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. See, Paul is saying, if there is a problem, don't you be the problem. Now, now you may have to concede a, a right or two. Uh, uh, you may have to suffer a wrong or two, but, but, but as much as it depends on you, try to be at peace with people. But I understand that's not always possible. Now, now if everybody you know is that unreasonable, then maybe everybody else isn't the problem. You know, if you meet somebody unreasonable like that, that ought to be the exception rather than the rule. But you know, if you leave home and everybody you met till you come back home again is just unreasonable and I can't talk to nobody, I don't think everybody else is the problem. You might need to look at the man in the mirror. But Jesus's manner and the design of the parable are to induce introspection not just on the part of the Jewish leaders, but on our part as well. See, it's possible to focus exclusively on others, even to the point of being hypercritical and miss my own lack. You know, I, I think this, this current world situation is, is, is a good example of that. You know, it is possible to point out what's wrong with everybody else's opinion was wrong with the way everybody else is acting and missed that I might be misdemeaned myself. So Jesus said, rather than focus on everybody else, I, I, I want you to try to focus on yourself. But, but he had to do it like uh, Nathan did David. Let me tell you a story that seems totally removed and let me get you to uh, comment on it objectively and then bring it home and see where you are in, in relation to what I said. When we look at this parable that Jesus uh, uh, tells here, the father in this parable represents God. The first son represents the Jews that had rebelled against God, but later repented. You know, like in Acts chapter two, you remember Peter's preaching and Peter's preaching hard there. Peter says, uh, uh, you've taken him and crucified him with wicked hands. And you remember Acts 2.37 says they were pricked in their hearts. And, and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter responded, uh, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you. That, that's the kind of person that would represent the first son. It, it didn't believe in Jesus initially, but when they were confronted with the facts, they finally said, you know what, we were wrong and, and we need to do what we can uh, uh, to make amends. The second son represents the Jews that claimed to obey God, but in reality did not. You know, when you think about the second son, you think about the Pharisees. 
You know, for all that the Pharisees considered themselves to be the enlightened ones and for all that they thought they were so much better than the other Jews. Have you ever read Jesus's commentary on the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23? I mean, Jesus had some things to say uh, uh, about the Pharisees who, who thought they were all this and all that. And I mean, Jesus just, he just called it for what it was. But when you look at what is this parable really about, the first son ultimately got it right. And in as much as he got it right, it's the first son that will be our focus uh, uh, this morning. Now, the father comes to the first son and says, son, go work today in my vineyard. And I'm going to stay on task. Uh, because even if I didn't know the rest of the parable, in my mind, it would have said, and so the son went and worked that day in the vineyard, because that's what his daddy told him to do. But verse 29 says, he answered and said, I will not. Boy, you sure enough taking your life in your hands. But afterward, he repented and went. I submit to you, number one this morning, that the true sons of God make themselves available to do his will. Now, God calls us to be worshipers and workers. Now, not just one or the other, but both of them at the same time. He calls us to be worshipers and workers. In John 4, verse 23, Jesus said, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers, which says that there are some false worshipers, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But you see, God calls us to be more than just worshipers. In God's mind, you ought to do more than just show up to the building on Sunday morning and for Bible class on Wednesday evening. God calls us to something greater than just being part of the assembly. He also calls us to be workers. In your Bibles, in Philippians 2, verse 13, Paul says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And appreciate while we are working, God is working in us. He has never expected his work to be done on human strength alone. See, the Lord not only gives precepts, he also gives power. God calls us to work, and at the same time, he is working in us. And whatever God has called us to do, he works in us so that we will be able to accomplish it. Now, God will work in us, but we must make ourselves available for his service. See, what God doesn't do is just grab you against your will and make you do what he wants to have done. God chooses to use us, but he also chooses to allow us to serve by our own free will. Now, there's consequences for, for obedience and disobedience, but understanding our purpose will help us with our priorities. If somebody asked you, why are you here? 
Now, now I don't mean in this building, or although you're here right now, but why are you here on earth? Well, what's your purpose in life? You ever have somebody ask you that when you were a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, what, what I want to be when I grow up, I ought to be working on right now. Are you aware of the fact that everybody is here for the same reason? I mean, whether or not you're a member of the church, God put all of us here for the same reason. Now, we don't all fulfill our creative purpose, but God put all of us here for the same reason. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse number 13, Solomon says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Now, now we can talk about it however we want to, however long we want to, and, and, and from whatever angle we want to, but Solomon said, when it's all said and done, appreciate this fact. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Everybody that's ever walked the, plant, uh, uh, the face of God's green earth was put here for the same reason, to fear God and keep his commandments. Now, that's not what everybody does in, in their time here, but that's why we were all put here. Uh, uh, that's why Jesus would say, Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Well, you were put here to serve God anyhow. I'm just reminding you of your creative purpose. But when we look at this parable, it was not what either of the sons said that made the difference. See, because the first son said, I will not. And some of us, I don't know that he would have got a chance to say much else after that. But what they said wasn't Jesus's question. His question was, which of the two did the will of his father? not which one said the right thing, which one did what his father wanted done. See, introspection demands that we ask ourselves, are we talkers or are we doers? And appreciate that I can be critical of something in another and be guilty of the very same thing that I'm criticizing in another. You remember Paul said Romans 2 verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Paul said, now you might be an expert in somebody else's fault, but the problem is you have the same fault that you're such an expert in in everybody else. But the true sons make themselves available to do his will. But then there is a second consideration uh, uh, from the text. He answered and said, I will not. See, and that's why it's good Jesus is telling the story. Because Lord knows if all we had was the first chance we messed up, none of us would be here now. Now, the boy was flat wrong for saying, I will not. And no need in us trying to ask, how did the daddy raise the boy that the boy would defy him to his face? You're missing the point of the parable. I, I, I'm not talking about disciplining your children. Yeah, if you raise your children right, they're not going to defy you to your face. Now, I know I, I, there's a lot of things my parents said I didn't agree with, but defying them to the face wasn't one of the ways you chose to respond to it. 
And, and if you do defy your parents to their face and they get physical with you, I'm going to shake their hand and say amen and hallelujah. But notice what he says there in verse 29. He answered and said, I will not, but afterward he repented. See, thank God for but afterward. Thank God that he's the God of the second chance. Thank God that it wasn't about just doing the right thing all the time the first time. Afterward, he repented. You know, when you hear that word defined, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of living. You know, the Christian life uh, is a life of change. And the second consideration, the true sons of God conform themselves to his will. The Christian life is a life of change. You remember the great declaration of the apostle Romans 12 verse two, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Of more note than the fact that he defied his father and I had trouble getting by that, but of more note than the fact that he defied his father is the fact that he repented. He said no, but then he went. There was a thought process involved in that. You ever thought about something and realized you were wrong? Now I will submit to you, realizing you're wrong is a step in the right direction. But there's a bigger step that we need to take after we realize that I'm wrong. See, realizing I'm wrong is important. However, making it right is also necessary. See, because if I realize I'm wrong, but then stay wrong, how much has the realization helped anybody? But when I realize I'm wrong and then do what I need to do, See, that's what happened in Acts 2.37. When they heard this, they were pricked. They realized they were wrong. But then they went the next step. What do we do to make it right? Men and brethren, what shall we do? What we have to appreciate is that to conform is not only to change, it is also to become. In Romans 8, verse 29, the Bible declares, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We are to change from who we were to becoming like him. And it's not just acting like him outwardly. What did Paul say? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. So, so conforming is not uh, uh, just changing, it's also becoming. But notice what this son did. He conformed himself to what his father wanted. At first he said, I will not, but afterward he repented. Which leads us to the third consideration this morning. Notice the last two words in verse 29 there, and went. 
The true sons of God submit themselves to his will. I don't know why the first son initially refused, and at the end of the day, why he refused is immaterial. It, it, it might have been hot. He might have been sore from doing something the previous day. All of that is irrelevant. What matters is that he repented and he went. He did what his father had requested. I submit to you that inferred in this parable is not only the fact that he went, but he also went with the right attitude. Now, I dare say with all the parents we have in here, you know, every time your child does something, they don't necessarily do it with the right attitude. You ever tell your child, clean up your room? And you could tell by the way they're cleaning that they're not happy to be cleaning. You know, they're just slinging stuff around in the room and kicking it over out the way. And, and you have to let them know that you're displeased with their attitude. Hey, you keep slinging stuff around, I'm gonna come sling you around. <laughs> See, attitude matters even to us. Now, I say you gotta be grinning from ear to ear and turning somersaults because you gotta clean your room, but you're not gonna be in there just kicking stuff around. Attitude matters to God. Second uh, Corinthians 9, verse 7, you know, we hear this read quite often uh, Sunday mornings during the contribution. Every man is his purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because, see, it's your attitude. See, because there's nothing you have that God couldn't have without you. Because everything we have, we got from God in the first place. So God said, look, don't come slinging what I gave you back to me. It ain't like I need you to give it to me. I could just take it if I wanted it. If you're going to give it, at least have the decency to give it with a spirit that says, thank you, Lord, for the privilege to give back to you what I got from you in the first place. And that's not just with money. That's with anything. Anything we do in God's service, we ought to do it cheerfully. Lord, I'm just happy to serve. Somebody need a shoulder to cry on? Well, you know what? I'm glad I got a shoulder you can cry on. Whatever we do in God's service, we ought to do it cheerfully because you can do a right thing with a wrong attitude. And let me tell you, doing the right thing with the wrong attitude is an unpleasant experience. You don't think that's right? Ask Jonah. See, Jonah did the right thing with the wrong attitude. And for him, it was an unpleasant experience. Now, how do you know it was an un un unpleasant experience? Because when you sit outside in the heat, waiting to see what's going to happen to somebody else, and the Lord asks you, doest thou well to be angry? And, and you say, look, I'm so mad I could die. That's an unpleasant experience. Now, Jonah, you preached to 120,000 people, and they all repented. Jonah, go talk to a preacher and that man, look, sometimes you don't get one person to come up and acknowledge the wrong in their living. And you got everybody and you sitting there mad? What's wrong with you? My bad attitude. See, I'm doing the right thing, but my attitude is wrong. 
which is why God tells us, look, you need to get your attitude together, because even if you do the right thing, your, your, your attitude is going to make it unpleasant to you. And beyond that, when we work with an unpleasant attitude, work with a bad attitude, the quality of your work is different. See, when you're working with a bad attitude, you don't give your best. You do just enough to get by. Now, I won't say I pay tax with a bad attitude, but I pay the minimum amount that Sam tells me I owe. If Sam say you owe $50.08, guess what you're getting? $50.08. And I cannot eat pennies if I have to. God loves a cheerful giver. Doing the right thing should bring us joy because doing the right thing pleases God. Listen, listen to Solomon, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 17. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things, and now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto thee. You notice what Solomon said, God has pleasure in uprightness. Doing the right thing should bring us joy, because doing the right thing pleases God. He wants us to be a people with integrity. You know what integrity is? Integrity is doing the right thing simply because it's the right thing to do. Integrity is not doing the right thing because I think I might get in trouble if I don't. It's not doing the right thing because I think somebody is watching me. Integrity is doing the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. That's integrity. That's what God wants us to have. And the true sons of God submit themselves to his will. Well, if you want to be a child of God, then you have to make yourself available to do the Father's will. You have to be willing to conform yourself to the Father's will. You must be willing to submit yourself to the Father's will. See, you can't argue with God about the terms of salvation. See, God will be God whether or not we obey the gospel. Jesus is Lord whether or not we obey the gospel. But if I want to be a child of God, then there are some things that I need to do in relation to what God has commanded if I want to be his child. God declares that we need to hear the good news that Jesus died for our sins. Romans 10, 17 declares that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to be believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Uh, I notice I have a typo there and didn't notice it till just now. I guess that's what they say. You shouldn't proofread your own work. Uh, it's actually not John 8, 32, it's John 8, 24. Uh, Jesus says, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. 
I must have had John 8.32 on my mind when I was doing this PowerPoint. Uh, the Bible requires that we be willing to repent of sin. In Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, uh, there the Bible declares that the times of this ignorance God winked, but now he commands that all men everywhere repent. And as we said, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of living. We must be willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Matthew 10, 32, and then be baptized in water for the remission of sins. Galatians 3, 26, 27, Paul says, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When we go down into the waters of baptism, God washes away our sins by the blood of Christ Jesus and dwells us with his spirit and he adds us to the church. And when we come up out of the waters of baptism, he requires that we live obediently in his service. In Ephesians 5, 15, 16, Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. God is, I, I believe it was uh, Brother Womble just said this morning uh, in Bible class, uh, remember who you are. When we come up out of the waters of baptism, we need to remember who we are. I am God's child. It is my responsibility, it is my duty to obey my father and faithfully represent him wherever this life may find me. Perhaps you're listening on one of the social media outlets. We bid you to reach out to our elders at elders at laurelchurch.net. Or maybe you're here in the audience this morning and you want to be baptized into Christ Jesus. Uh, if that is your desire, then we bid you to come as we stand and as we sing the song of invitation.